previously on Hacker Valley Blue. Today, we're switching gears and introducing the first ever season of Hacker Valley Red. We talk about what red actually can do for organizations and what the, the path of somebody in the red side looks like. It's a disservice to the skill set, to the mentality, to the creativity, to the persistence of, of people that have that particular drive. And we thought that it was important that everyone who was going down this path of working with the, with the hacker community just embrace that you're working with hackers. And that's what you want to be doing. Trying to detect the adversary on the network faster and lowering that MTTD and MTTR for mean time to response. That's what we need to be focused on. What, not what technologies can prevent the breach in the first place, what technologies can help me catch the adversary more quickly. This is the Hacker Valley Studio Podcast, exploring the human element behind cybersecurity programs and technology. This episode is sponsored by Risk IQ. There are so many researchers and analysts that I know and trust that use Risk IQ's platform. Not to mention I have personally leaned on Risk IQ while leading threat intelligence capabilities in my career. Risk IQ has been crawling and absorbing the internet so practitioners can leverage that data during investigations and research. If you want to learn more about Risk IQ, visit riskiq.com or jump down into the information below in the show notes. In this episode of Hacker Valley Red, we have the awesome Ted Harrington. He's an executive, an author, and a professional speaker. And in this episode, we talk about the unhackable. Is that even a thing? We talk about his experiences and also an interesting story about seeing an attack in real time. Without further ado, let's jump right to this episode. What's going on, everybody? You are in the Hacker Valley studio with your hosts, Ron and Chris. Yes, sir. Welcome back to the show. Glad to be back again here in the studio on our Red Series season. And today we have a very special guest. We have Ted Harrington. He is the author of Hackable and also an executive partner at ISE Security. Ted, there's a lot more that we're going to jump into about your background. I know you've done a lot, but most importantly, welcome to the show. Yeah, guys, thank you so much for having me. I've, I've been a, a fan of what you're doing, so it's pretty fulfilling and exciting to be here. Yeah, Ted, thank you so much for being on the, the mics with us today. Obviously, I'm super excited about this episode. I've actually done a little bit of research into your background. You have one of the best speaker reels I've ever seen. Just want to get that out of the way. But for the folks that don't know who you are just yet, would love to hear a little bit about your background and what you're doing today. Sure. Yeah. So I'm one of the partners in this consulting firm uh, called ISE that basically we're a bunch of ethical hackers and computer scientists and penetration testers and basically the good guys who do the bad guy stuff. And, you know, we've been sort of on this mission for, for a really long time since our first piece of research actually was all the way back in 2005 and we hacked a car and I'd be happy to, you know, we could tell that story later if we want, but basically we hacked this car and what was really interesting, what happened once we did that was that 
a lot of people were interested and uh, a lot of news articles were covered about that. You know, companies came calling and they said, hey, look, you guys know how to break things. Can you help us with our security challenges? And you know, it's been a rocket ship since. We basically have been in this really privileged position to help all these really innovative companies that are you know, trying to change the world through whatever technology they're building. And we've been able to help them solve their security problems by breaking their stuff. So that's kind of, you know, every part of everything that I do is centered around that idea, whether it's, you know, speaking, you know, like you mentioned, Chris, with my, uh, my speaker reel or writing books or whatever. So that's what definitely gets my engine ribbon. Speaking of hacking cars, no pun intended, right? And, you know, I always think back, you know, when there, you were one of the first, if not the first person to hack a car digitally. And I think it would be, you know, from my perspective, it would be a, an expensive hobby or an expensive project to take up. How did you get in that type of work in the first place? What led you to hack a car and what kind of car was it? <laughs> well, what led us to that piece of research was something that it blows my mind that people still even say it today. And it was this one word, unhackable. <laughs> <laughs> oh, one of our favorite words. Yes. <laughs> it's like when I was writing my book, I was really struggling with what what should the title be, right? How do you condense down you know, years and years and years of experience and stories into a simple moniker that conveys to your audience that, hey, this is for you. And it's because of stuff like this, you know, that people use terms like unhackables is why I actually titled my book Hackable, because, you know, I want to challenge those really bad preconceptions that people sometimes have. But so back in 2005, this was uh, a system that uses that uh, Ford and many of the other major automotive manufacturers use in the emission sequence. And that was, this system was considered to be unhackable. And it's basically this communication between the onboard computer, you know, that's in the car and then that chip that's in your key. And this chip is why car keys are large, right? They're larger than the mechanical bit that actually would stick into the ignition. And so of course, you know, you hear a claim like that and the, the natural human reaction is challenge accepted. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so we just, we set out to go understand, you know, to really disprove that claim. And it <laughs> remarkably, it wasn't actually that expensive. I mean, I guess the car itself maybe was was expensive, but we didn't have to destroy the car or anything. The the long and the short of the research was that really all that it took to reverse engineer the cryptographic algorithm and then ultimately, you know, break the way the cryptography worked on the system, we're talking a few hundred dollars worth of off-the-shelf components, and then we just needed a little bit of time for the attack to run. And we were able to defeat that. So, yeah, I think that if you were in the research practice of uh, constantly tearing apart cars, yeah, that would probably get pretty expensive. But this was just, oh yeah, we had this one claim. We had to go poke at this claim. So, I mean, we might as well go ahead and get right to it. We've been asking people about, you know, this term unhackable. Is that even possible in any figment of the imagination? Can you have an unhackable system? Yeah. Just don't plug it into anything, bury it in concrete, and don't use it. <laughs> but even then, I still think there's a chance. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's a vector that I haven't considered. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> there's like a little battery somewhere that <laughs> someone can access. Yeah. So things generally aren't 
unhackable. Like that's just something that you can't say about any type of system. But what you can do is you can close off attack vectors, right? And so how do you feel about people focusing on that from a technical perspective? I mean, fundamentally, what is security about, right? Security is about getting better because you're never going to arrive at a situation where a system cannot be defeated. It just, it's, it's an impossibility. Now, what you can do though, is you can evolve a system to a point where the requirements for attack are just so high that the attackers just, they just won't want to go after it, or there's just too much difficulty or they give up before they succeed. So there's a lot of things that we can do. And that's in a lot of ways, I think that's the really the purpose and that's what our job is as security professionals is to to help the companies who are building things realize that that's the mission that they're on right there's no such thing as unhackable there's no such thing as a clean bill of health and so continuing to iterate towards being stronger tomorrow than you are today that's the mission and it's a struggle i think for people sometimes to first understand that's really what the mission is and then do anything about it. But once that's accepted, then you know, you're off to the races. Yeah, it seems like with kind of the digital transformation that we're going through today, everyone working from home, more organizations and companies moving to cloud-based solutions. It seems like when you go through these transformations or adopt new technology, you don't necessarily know about the attack vector. It's like this technology is somewhat new to you. You know how to use it, but you haven't even thought about the security. Do you run into that a lot where it just seems like a device or an organization that you're working with trying to look for the flaws, like just didn't even think about the security at all? Oh, yeah. I mean, besides every single day, yes. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not trying to belittle people who are building things because fundamentally the the mindset to build something and the mindset to break something are different. And some people actually try to argue that. And uh, I had this really interesting exchange with a venture capitalist recently who I was asking him about, you know, some of these types of questions that we're talking about here and, and, and it with across his portfolio companies. And he said to me, and I, I really, my heart goes out to this guy because he doesn't realize the blind spot that he has. He said, he said, you know, all our portfolio companies, they think that they're young engineers that are in the development team that they can handle the need to for penetration testing and for finding vulnerabilities. They got it. They know how to build the thing, so of course they know how to break it. And it's like, not really. I mean, if you wanna if you wanna demolish a building, you're gonna get the person who's the expert at demolition, even though the person who maybe built that same building might have an idea where the weaknesses are. They just don't think about it the same way as the person who spends every waking moment thinking about demolition. And changing that mindset, I think, is, is pretty, pretty important. So you bring up a great point because uh, I just did a talk in the Red Team Village for DEF CON. And the first question that I was asked is, am I a builder or a breaker? And so from your perspective, have you always been a breaker? Would you say you're a bricker that became a builder or a combination of both? Yeah, I love that question. So when I look at the, I asked a question that's actually somewhat similar to that to a lot of our our analysts. And, and I was, when I look across the pool of people who work in this sort of specialty of ethical hacking, and I can't say for, you know, for everyone who works in the field, but the people who work for me, 
what's really interesting about them is that many of them actually started as builders, right? They started coming up through computer science and at some point they looked at the field and the opportunities or which direction they might go. And they realized that they really liked the type of problem solving that is breaking things. And what makes a lot of these people really, really good at breaking is that they have the foundation of the of building, right? They they understand how things are built because by understanding how something is built, that helps them understand how to break it. And I actually would even go so far as to say it might be pretty hard to be any good at breaking something if you didn't have the capability to understand how things are built. It's a very interesting perception of it, just because we recently had a red teamer, uh, uh, a breaker that was talking about their inexperience with coding. They never really learned how to code. So it really forced them to look at the problem differently. They had to use other things that they didn't know about the solution. It was more of a black box for them. And that kind of created the fun for breaking into those devices or applications. So I think it's a pretty interesting shift to kind of hear about why knowing how to build something will help you break it. Well, I can tell, I don't know exactly the person who is that you're referring to, but based on just the one fact that you just described, I'd be willing to bet that that person is actually quite good at what they do because that, that mindset of rather than looking at a problem and saying, I can't do this thing, thus I, I'm at the dead end. People who are really good at breaking things, they look at a problem and they say, okay, well, if this is the box, how do I create a different box? Or what's the way into the box? Who makes the box? And you know, they, it's that sort of creative problem solving that's really looking at things differently than the way the normal person thinks. I mean, people ask me all the time. I use this tagline in my, uh, it's just a sort of part of my professional profile, this idea of, you know, think like a hacker. And, you know, a lot of, I'm not the only person to, to say that phrase, but people often ask me, they say, well, what does that even mean? And the first thing that I, I do is, of course, clarify that hacker is neither good nor bad, even though every single news article would have you believe that hacker is a bad thing. But hacker just means someone who solves problems creatively and, and makes things do things that they're not originally intended to do. That's what a hacker does. And an ethical hacker applies that to find problems and fix them, whereas attackers exploit those issues. And so then when you think about, okay, so what does that mean then if you're talking about the either kind? It's you need to look at the way something is supposed to work and then make it do something different. And that, I mean, MacGyver from the, you know, the TV show back in the day, he was a hacker and that's exactly what he would do. He would look at a paperclip and say, hey, how can mm -hmm. this in fact be an igniter? Yep. I think you nailed it. And you know, that's one of the things that we do with, with our podcast. So you look at our name, Hacker Valley Studio, but hacker isn't just this this moniker of of evilness in, in the basement wearing a hoodie doing destructive things hacker is so many things because you have people that are life hackers right what do you how do you get the most out of life how do you bend the rules of life to be in your favor people hack their careers there are so many ways to hack things and i think it's a mentality that people really need to understand that it's a mentality. It's not necessarily you're an evil person, but it's how you think about problems. That's so good, man. When I listen to this podcast playback, I'm going to write down every word you just said. That uh, You nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think people need to, to know about 
you know, not even just hackers, but when it comes to red teamers in general, because I, I think there's a bit of a misunderstanding when I talk to different people, especially people on the blue side, maybe even some of the leaders. What do you think people get wrong about red engagements and red teams in general? A lot. <laughs> Is that too broad of an answer? They, uh... Uh, no, we'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think one of the one of the really really big challenges is the terms themselves because different terms mean different things and they require different approaches, they require different levels of effort, different levels of skill, they cost different amounts, and yet these terms are used interchangeably and they shouldn't. And so the one that's probably most commonly used within sort of my sphere is, of course, penetration testing. And that has sort of become this catch-all term to refer to any sort of security testing. But it's really not. Penetration testing is designed for a very mature, very heavily hardened system, something that's been through a lot of security testing already. And it's sort of like a do-or-die mission. And the metaphor, I think, for that is something like, if you can think about Navy SEAL Team 6, when they went to go take out Osama bin Laden, right? It was, they had a single mission and it was capture or kill bin Laden. And as soon as they did, or they, they ran out of time or resources to do it, that was essentially the end of it. The point wasn't necessarily to probe an entire uh, defense and rate the severity of all these vulnerabilities and try to fix everything. It was, here was something really narrow on a very heavily fortified uh, system. So that's that's what penetration testing is is really supposed to be, but the term actually often is being used to mean something entirely different. When uh, if you Google right now penetration testing, most of the results will be vulnerability scans. They'll just be tools that you know maybe there's a manual component to remove some false positives. But what's crazy about that is the metaphor there is it's lightweight. It catches the easy known obvious issues. It's kind of more like walking through a metal detector. So it does the basic stuff pretty easily, but it's not effective against even a mildly sophisticated attack. And that's what's so crazy, right? Someone's like, give me Navy SEAL Team 6, and they're being sold a walk through a metal detector. And they don't even know it's happening. And then on top of that, there's what they usually need, at least in my experience with the companies that we've advised, they usually need something altogether different, which is a vulnerability assessment. And that's where the metaphor there is more like Navy SEAL team training, right? Where you go and you take these people who are really good at what they do, they're elite, they're tough as nails, and you just, you, you abuse them to make them better. And vulnerability assessments, that's what they do, right? They, they're intended to find as many vulnerabilities as you can, to assign the severity to them, to assign a remediation plan, to verify the remediations worked. And that one problem that, you know, just took me like three or four minutes to describe, that causes so many of the challenges across security because people don't necessarily know what they're asking for. And when you ask for the wrong thing, you get the wrong thing. And that's a, that's a real problem across the entire security community. That's so true. And Chris and I talk about this quite a bit through his uh, framework that he created called the easy button. A lot of times we don't even spend the time to define the requirements. Like what is it that we want to protect against or what is it that we want to learn more about? So, yeah, you could easily go down that that route of 
trying to hire SEAL Team 6, but you've really hired a metal detector. Through all of your experience and also even organizing the IoT Village, what are some things that you've come across when trying to attack a device that you weren't expecting to see? What are some of the kind of surprises that you've experienced over the time? Yeah, oh man, so many good stories which to choose from. Well, I can tell you about one exploit scenario that was pretty cool. We were doing a project related to cryptocurrency wallets. And what we were interested in was the way that keys are provisioned. And fundamentally, the outcome was, you know, could an attacker predict a key in such a way that the attacker could now have access to the funds in that wallet, which is, of course, bad because then the attacker could steal the funds. And the way that cryptocurrency wallets work are the ones that we were looking at, keys shouldn't be predictable. Uh, or I, let's just say it should be statistically impossible. We tried to develop a what would be a metaphor for how impossible it should be. And this would be the metaphor for how impossible it should be to guess the key. It would be like, Chris, you go to the beach. You pick up a grain of sand. You throw the grain of sand back in the beach. I come back the next day. I pick up a single grain of sand. And it's the same grain. And then you multiply that by every beach on earth multiplied by like a million billion earths. Oh, wow. And that's about the probability that someone could guess a key with the way that these cryptocurrency wallets are designed. So impossible. In the course of the project that we were doing, we actually predicted 732 keys. Hmm. Which is crazy, right? And like it just it shouldn't happen once let alone 732 times and this was by the way over the course of this was less than i think less than 2 months so it wasn't like we spent decades doing this it was a short period of time so that was in its own right was cool but what happened next was i haven't actually experienced something like this before so what we then wanted to do was we wanted to see okay well how do we notify these people that their money is at risk and you know, the trade-off to cryptocurrencies is they're decentralized and there's no company to report this to. So there's really no way to tell anybody. Um, we even considered like, oh, maybe we should take the money out and then donate to charity. And our lawyers were like, do not oh, even oh, think that. <laughs> <laughs> so we're like, okay, we won't touch the money. So then we're like, all right, well, let's just see how much money's even at stake here. Maybe this isn't, maybe, maybe the money part of the story doesn't matter. And so because it's a cryptocurrency wallet, which means the transactions are on the blockchain, it meant we could see how much money was in each wallet and or had been you know moved into and, and out of different wallets. And it turns out that the money that was at stake here that was predictable was $54 million uh, US dollars. Get out of here. Yeah, so it's like a huge amount of money, easily attainable. We can't tell anybody about it because there's nobody to tell. And so now we're like, let's see what happened with the money. Like maybe the, maybe these people have taken it out. Maybe there's some other way we can deduce to tell people. Well, it turns out that the money was in fact moving. And it turns out that all, every single unit of currency of those 732 weak wallets, all had centralized to a single wallet. So we're like, okay, that's one of two what? things. That's one person centralizing his money, his consolidating his money. Or that is a thief stealing everybody's money. And so, again, we can't really con- – it's like there's not like a help desk email. We can't say, hey, is this your, e- is this your uh, wallet? So 
to verify which it was, this is what we did. We took uh, the equivalent of a dollar of our own currency and dropped it into one of those wallets because you know we knew how to, we knew where to what the destination was. So we sent this money into this one of these vulnerable wallets, and it wasn't even a minute; it was maybe two minutes or something, I, I believe. And that money was instantly, instantly gone. And so we know now we knew at the conclusion of this, that we had actually uncovered an attack technique that an attacker was actively using. We knew how much money he'd stolen. We knew where he was storing it. I'm saying he, it could, he or she, we don't know gender. It could have even been a group. Um, And I mean, that's crazy. That's like a thief, you know, breaking into a house to rob the house. And there's someone already robbing the house. It's like, it's bizarre. So we named that person Blockchain Bandit, and we actually broke the story with the Washington Post. As you can imagine, it made for a pretty good news story. But man, I've never been in that type of situation where research led to actually the uncovery of an attack in progress. That is insane. I'm as soon as we're done with this podcast, I'm, I'm going to go look that up. <laughs> That's insane. incredible. What? I mean, but that should tell you something, right? There's so many lessons, even from that little story that people need to be cognizant of, whether you're an organization, a big conglomerate, or an individual person. What do you think people need to learn about when they hear about these breaches, when they hear about these attacks? I feel like sometimes that information falls on deaf ears. So what do you think people need to do to actually start to take that information and put it to good use? That's the right question, right? And your observation so spot on, right? There's so much breach fatigue going on where people are like, oh, okay, yeah, another company is hacked. Oh, it might be me someday. And, and I think that that laissez-faire attitude is actually, it's a real danger to the progress of, uh, not even the progress of the security industry, but to the idea and the business of building things. That's We have to make sure that, first of all, that, that sort of attitude of accepting it, we squash that. So here's what people should do with this. They should realize that this is a real problem, but it's not impossible. And that's where I think a lot of the fatigue and the complacency comes from is people look at it and they're like, well, you know, I hear all these security people always talking about I'm getting hacked and there's a headline every day I'm going to get hacked. And so what's the point? Well, there is actually a method to the madness. I mean, that's why I wrote I wrote the book that I wrote because I, I know exactly what the steps are. And, you know, in summary, those steps are, you know, first, you have to have the right mission, you have to set the right framework of what you're trying to do. So that's you have to have the right mindset, which is you, you need to get better. And you need to think like an attacker. And then you need to have the right partnerships. So working with whatever uh, type of uh, consulting firm or outside security experts to augment your in house experts. And then there's a whole once you have that established there's a whole process about how you actually need to approach from a methodology standpoint, which is maximizing information sharing. And then there's a method to how you actually find the vulnerabilities. There's a method to how you fix the vulnerabilities. There's a method to how you do this over time. And then ultimately the outcome of all that, if you do all that right, it's a competitive advantage. And this is the thing that I think it's really lost in the security conversation because security is so often seen as a tax on the business when it's actually an investment and everyone wants to reduce taxes and they want to maximize investments. And that mindset shift is, is, is really crucial because if you can do that, 
and you can turn security into the competitive advantage. And you know, I'm happy to talk about that too, if you guys want. That competitive advantage is the business case. It's not just avoiding a bad thing. It's obtaining a good thing. I would actually like to hear a little bit about that. I think that from my experience working with organizations, and I'm sure this is the same for a lot of people, but you get bogged down, like you were saying, with the breach fatigue. You get all this information from the vendors that you use, and then you get bogged down by more requests that you know your stakeholders may ask for. So what is this competitive advantage and does it look like strategies to maybe onboard more technologies or is it the reduction or maybe a combination of both? Here's how we have to think about competitive advantage, right? And it's, it's from the perspective of the buyer. So we think about enterprise buyers who are going to purchase the product or service of whatever your company is. And, but in order to do that, that enterprise buyer, they demand, they expect security. They want to use solutions and vendors that are secure. And so that's the starting point, right? That's sort of the context in which we all live. The enterprise buyer is expecting security of the companies they're going to do business with. Now, the reaction to that has been just a really terrible way to do it. Most companies, they try to do a lot of hand-waving and they try to use jargon and they try to use nonsensical terms and they try to get the enterprise buyer to sort of ignore the security questions. And they try to say, oh, we use military-grade encryption or we, we do external penetration testing or you know whatever it is their claims are. But usually those claims are, first of all, not backed up appropriately. Even companies who think they're backing it up because they maybe run a scanner or something, they're, they're not successfully doing what needs to be done. But because the enterprise buyer wants security, and because most organizations, first of all, are not doing security right and can't prove it, for anyone who is doing security right and can prove it, it's an enormous opportunity. Because that's what the buyer is looking for. The rest of the market isn't able to successfully deliver it. So all you have to do is first be secure and then articulate in ways that actually can successfully prove it. One thing that I I noticed just from talking to you now, from seeing your speaker reel to even the book, things like that, I sense an immense amount of energy. Where does that energy come from and what motivates you to not only speak about this and write about this, but actually practice? Yeah, when I was in earlier phases of my career, over time, I slowly started identifying these principles that are what really drive me and drive my decisions. And at this point in my life, I've identified four principles and I'm sure I'll identify more as I continue to grow and mature and, you know, learn myself, learn who I am better. But those are, I'm driven to do hard things that matter in the service of others and get better every day. And when I first was able to find my way into security, you know, many, many years ago, I discovered all four of those things exist in this field. And that is really where my energy comes from because I'm not doing this just because it's my job and you know I punch in and punch out. I'm doing this because this is this is fulfilling for me. This is who I am as a human being 
is manifests itself in the ability to help innovators, to help entrepreneurs, you know, make their mark on the world. And that to me is like, I am excited to get out of bed to do that. I'm curious, you know, with all that being said, what's, what's the most fascinating part of breaking things and looking at technology that you're looking at today? What's the most fascinating part of that? I'd say it's probably problem solving, looking at something that is supposed to work in a certain way and then trying to figure out, can it work in a different way? And I love this story that a really famous game hacker told about, and there was a a profile in his work. And I, I know this guy personally, he's a really, really sharp guy, really awesome, good advisor and mentor for me. He, for many, many years was hacking these online games, right? And the online games typically have in-game currency. So you can buy a weapons upgrade or a skills upgrade or a new skin for your avatar, like whatever it is that you would need money for in a game. And what (laughs) this guy was telling me this story about that he was able to exploit was the way that those banking systems in the game treat numbers. And so usually what they're trying to, it's, this is way oversimplifying, but it's like, your current balance minus whatever you need to withdraw equals a new balance. And what he wanted to mess around with was that idea of subtraction. And it was, it was set up to subtract a positive number, you know, like 500 minus hundred equals 400. And so he's like, well, what if I use negative numbers? Mm. And sure enough, as we all learned in middle school, when you subtract a negative number, it becomes addition. And so he exploited this vulnerability that actually helped him obtain currency that he could then sell, you know, in secondary markets and stuff. And I hear stories like that. And I'm like, how do you not get excited about something like that? It's like hiding in plain sight. It's just cool to talk about. And then as a result, you get to help a company that's, you know, on whatever mission they're on, you get to help them do their mission better. That's incredible. And, you know, I, I love stories like that because then you start to think like, hmm, Maybe if I apply that to my daily life, things would be a lot different. If you just kind of ask the question, what if, what if I do this? What, what happens? What if I do that? And that's really just a a decision tree for life, for how you pen test things, for how you red team all all the way across the, the board. What do you think is the most important for people that are looking to get into this field, that are looking to be on the offense, that are looking to be red? What are some of the most important things they need to be thinking about from a a mindset perspective and then also from an operational perspective? Yeah, well, first and foremost, it's pretty difficult to get the training and education that you need to do this type of work in an academic setting, at least today. Now, over a long enough period of time, my anticipation is that's going to change. But if you look at your typical computer science degree program where many ethical hackers you know, come out of, certainly not all, but many, security is maybe there's a class on it and maybe there's a club, but it's usually more of an area of interest than the core area of focus. And so for people coming out of a program like that who want to pursue a field like this, they have to do it on their own time. And they don't even necessarily know where to go find all that information. And there isn't a single place to go get it all. So I think the the first thing would just be to accept that there's not a clearly delineated path. 
right? Like if you wanted to be an investment banker, it is very clear what the steps are starting from, you know, what college you get into all the way through to becoming an investment banker. Like those steps are relatively clear, but how to become an ethical hacker, it's a lot less clear. And you just ultimately, you just have to roll up your sleeves and you have to do it. But the beauty of that is that you get to go do all this fun stuff in the meantime, you know? So the recommendation is always go to DEF CON, just talk to everybody at DEF CON, attend talks, go to the villages, get hands-on with different hacking contests and stuff. And that's how you're going to learn. And you get to have fun while you're doing it. You meet other people who are like-minded and all of a sudden you find that, hey, there is a community of people like you who want to do this. So that that's really, you know, first and foremost, it's going to take some work, but once you find yourself in that community, you'll be on a rocket ship. So I'm sure, you know, back in 2005, when you did your first car hack, you probably went to the school of hard knocks to learn, you know, how to break into this car and do what you ultimately were able to achieve from it. What are some places that someone can start today if they were interested in following a similar path that you have? There's a lot more resources, information overload, but what's maybe a more distilled path that they can just start with and begin looking at? Yeah, there's definitely tons more resources today to to get started. So there's a few things that I'd recommend. I would probably, I mean, I rattled a couple of them off a second ago, but Definitely starting with participating in some hacking contests. We run one at IoT Village, which is one of the villages at DEF CON. And it's really cool to see both these ridiculously experienced and seasoned and capable people sitting right next to people who have are literally learning this for the first time right next to each other. And you got to be hands-on. You know, that's where to start. So I think there's tons of resources around DEF CON. I would start with something like that. With everything virtual this year, I mean, that's certainly a silver lining to the ridiculous and horrible pandemic that we're in is that so much in-person learning that has travel expenses and attendance fees and all that stuff associated with it. Now, most of it's free and you can do it from home. I would start by getting involved hands-on in some way. And then to what extent you can, go get an internship. We hire interns who aren't even necessarily in the breaking yet. They're just really smart computer scientists. They have an interest and demonstrated an aptitude for this type of work. And then we'll train them, right? It's as long as they have the right attitude and and aptitude, then we can teach them. So that you don't have experience yet, I would say, don't let that be the barrier to you trying to get a job at a company who wants to hire smart, motivated people. We talk about legacy quite often on the podcast and especially with people that are trying to do so much, because like I said, you know, it takes a lot of energy to do the stuff that you're doing. What do you really want your, your legacy? What do you want your impact to this industry to be going forward? Just to keep driving better. We use that word so many times a day that it's, <laughs> it's to a point where it's like people say it back to me sometimes. I'm like, are they, I'm not sure if they're making fun of me right now because I say better like every 10 minutes. But, you know, that's definitely the things that I'm driving for. They all sort of center around that idea. I mean, as an example, you know, this book that I'm writing, one of the things that you grapple with when you're writing a book is, and I think a lot of people grapple with this, is how much to share, right? It's like, well, if I, a lot, a lot of people think this, they say, well, if I put all the good stuff in the book, then will people hire me? And the reality is, yeah, they, they they will. But the point is, you shouldn't be writing a book 
just to get someone to hire you. You should be writing a book to help people. And so for that reason, I wrote this book with the same advice, the same insights, the same strategies, tactics, and techniques that I say every day to our customers or prospective customers or whoever. That's really what I'm trying to do is trying to make not just the industries and the companies that we serve better, but to make our own people better and to make this community of security enthusiasts better. And if I can do that, then I will be very happy looking back on my career later. Ted, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the podcast with us. I think there's a lot that people need to unpack here. For the folks that want to stay up to date with you, all the research you've done, your book, all those things, what are the best ways that people can stay in touch? I would say first, connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm very, very active there. I mean, Chris, you and I are always shooting each other messages back and forth. Connect with me on LinkedIn. Get yourself signed up for my book. It comes out very, very soon. You can go to hackablebook.com. And if you find yourself, you know, if you work at a company where you need to need some help solving some of these challenges, you know, hit me up and uh, maybe I can help you. And if I can't, I'll point you to somebody who can. And my email address is super easy. It's just ted at ise.io. Nice. Thanks so much, Ted. We'll be sure to drop all that in the show notes just so everyone can grab the book and definitely stay in contact. Really appreciate the time and we'll see everybody next time. Thank you guys so much for having me. This was really fun.